Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21. It's found on page 321 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. So thankful for our safety and security team and just so that you are aware that after these, after the choir dismisses, these doors are locked and if you do exit out during the sermon, you need to come around to the back to come back in. That's just it's been in place, but some have asked me about that. I want to make that clear. And then this weekend, a number of us want you to join us, celebrated John Franks and his birthday. John's been a staff person here for a quarter of a century, which is half his life. You can do the <laughs> word problem there. And uh, it was a gracious and glorious time of celebration of God's faithfulness. I love John Frank so much as I know you do as well. He's been such a dear colleague, but also a great friend. And Aaron, we love you very much and very thankful for you as well. Our text, 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 17, is a dark text. David is not viewed as heroic. He seems more confused and needy and... The thoughtful reader would ask the question, where is the light and where's the gospel in this text? But what we'll see is that chapters 21 through 24 are an appendix. They're focused at the end of David's life to summarize his life and leadership. And I entitled the sermon, Living Under God's Smile because it best typifies David's life and leadership. Because he was in covenant with God, he lived his life under God's smile. And chapters 21 through 24 bookend as the ending, the appendix, like chapters one and two begin. Over the next several weeks, we'll unpack how we see Hannah's prayer as a barren woman and then we see David's prayer at the end of his life. We'll see the provision of Samuel, and then we'll see the provision of God's covenant running through lines of a king, and we'll see praise at the end. But what we don't see is that the end of the story is not that God was faithful to David because of David's faithfulness we'll see that God is faithful to David in spite of his faithfulness, but because God is the God of covenant. And in this text, in order, as I said, it's a difficult and dark text, but to work through it, we will see what is a covenant and why we need it. We will see that covenant breaking carries consequences and requires God's prescription for restoration, and then we'll see how, as God's covenant people, we are empowered to build a covenant community. The key word in the Old Testament to describe God's character is the word hesed. It's used over 250 times. It's always attached to God's covenant faithfulness. Hesed is God's loyal love his steadfast loving kindness that endures even when we are faithless. We'll see in this text that covenant is the key to understanding the passage. Notice, I'll just walk through this quickly, five 
specific references to covenant. First in verse 1, David sought the face of the Lord. That's covenant language. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul because of the broken covenant. So we see covenant displayed in David seeking the Lord and the covenant broken. Verse 3, David says, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The word bless and heritage is covenant language. And the word atonement explains how a covenant must be restored through the shedding of blood. Verse 7, the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because the oath, the covenant that David made with Jonathan. You see covenant faithfulness. In verse 10, Rizpah, who's the mother of two of the dead Israelites, she goes and with her body in sackcloth covers these young men who've been killed and she demonstrates even in their death her covenant to show compassion and fulfill her role as a mother. It moves David in such a way that he goes and rescues Saul and Jonathan's body from the Philistines and gives them a proper burial. It's, it's the covenant demonstrated. And then lastly, 15 through 17, David has grown weary in battle and he is protected by one of his men and they make a vow, they send him away in verse 17 and they say, we must protect you lest the lamp of Israel be quenched. It's covenant preservation and perpetuation. The line of David is God's covenant pathway and we'll read from God's word how our only hope in life and death is God's faithfulness to his covenant we experience it living under God's smile. Start in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on the house, his house, because he put to death the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, that would have been a covenant that Joshua made in Joshua 9, to these living in the land, a treaty was made. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Saul broke that covenant that Joshua made. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither it is for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. We've read and learned about Mephibosheth, who's spared and is kept in David's uh, court because it says here, the oath or the covenant of the Lord 
which was made between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, that's another Mephibosheth, not the same, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Ariel, the son of Barzillia, the Mehoathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rispah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. When David was told what Rispah, the daughter of Ahah, the concubine of Saul had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged and they buried them properly the bones of Saul and the son of Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father and they did all that the king commanded and after that God responded to the plea for the land and reign. Now the next section speaks of several wars I'm just going to uh, battles with the Philistines I'm just going to read the first one there was a war again between the Philistines and Israel David went down together with his servant and fought against the Philistines David grew weary and Ishbi Benob one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword thought to kill David but Abishai the son of Zeruiah came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him. He met, they made an oath. You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to thee, O God. Let's pray together. Father, we open our eyes that we would see what it means to live in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are the light of the world, and thank you that you've unveiled heaven and you've brought the light to us. Teach us what it means to live under your smile. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So first, what is a covenant and why we need it? The chapter begins with a famine in the land. The text implies that David has not been seeking the Lord when it says year after year, nothing is being done. The king is apparently derelict of duty as it relates to leading the nation spiritually. We don't know exactly when this text represents the times of David's leadership, but likely it's in the time of his leadership after the fall of Beth, uh, Beth, with Bathsheba in the death of Uriah, and it's telling us that later in life, David struggled both in his spirituality but also in his military leadership. But David is in covenant with God. 
the text says that he seeks God's face. That's covenant language. You remember the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you and the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you to give you his peace. We're told that Moses, God spoke to him face to face even as a man speaks to his friend. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says that we all with unveiled face see as in a mirror dimly the glory of the Lord and we're changed. All of us now in covenant live before the face of God. The early reformers called this quorum Deo, living in the presence of God. And here, David asked the Lord to restore the rains and he asked why is there a famine we note here God's answer God's answer is that Saul had not been faithful to the covenant he had made with the Amorites who were living in the land and I mentioned in Joshua 9 that covenant shrewdly made with the Amorites was still to be kept but thousands had been murdered the text tells us and Saul was not held accountable in any way. It's likely that this incident had happened decades before. What we learn from this text is that there's a covenant with creation in addition to a covenant of redemption. God made a covenant with this earth and with Adam, and in Adam's breaking of this covenant, he renewed to preserve the earth that was the covenant with Noah. And then he made the covenant of redemption or grace seen or reflected with Moses in the covenant of law, with Abram in the covenant of promise, with David in the covenant of the kingdom. And then we read in the text this new covenant with Jesus where God will fulfill all that he promised here. But don't miss out here that the text is telling us is that the material world is actually a moral world, and there's a moral center to the universe. You can live your life as if you don't believe that. You don't believe the Bible. You don't believe that at the center of the universe is any moral accountability. But the Bible calls that person foolish. If you live as if you believe that there's no moral accountability, the Bible says you're foolish. Now you say, well, God judges with his wrath in the Old Testament, Mike, but the New Testament teaches a God of love, and we don't believe that God deals with us in judgment. That's not true. Galatians chapter 6 says, Do not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. And Decades later, God is holding the people of Israel accountable for the sins of Saul. To live as if you think that there's no moral law would be to live as if you think that there's no physical law. Let me illustrate. You'd think it was foolish if you said, you know what, I'm tired and weighed down by the law of gravity. I don't like the law of gravity, and I think that I'm just going to ignore the law of gravity. I'm going to believe that I can live in my new identity as if gravity doesn't exist. Well, 
Are you willing to demonstrate that? You'd go to the top of a building and jump off that building to prove that, you know what? It's a foolish thing to believe in the law of gravity. And maybe for 12 or 13 floors, you might fly in your foolishness. But when you hit the ground, that's what you call a rude awakening. And you did not break the law of gravity. The law of gravity has just broken you. You see, you do not break the law of God. What happens in a moral universe is when you live outside the moral covenant of God, you bring judgment on yourself. This text reminds us our only hope as fallen sinners is some kind of covenant. Now that covenant was a pledge that God made with Abraham. You recall in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you. I will bless your children. I will provide a land from you, a land for you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed in you. Walk before me and be blameless. In Genesis 15, Abraham said to God, how will I know? What if I doubt? How can I be assured that you will protect me if I'm going to walk by faith? And you recall, God instructed Abraham to cut a covenant, to bring the carcasses of sacrificial animals, to cut them in half, which was a cultural practice. And all on the bloody ground, the carcasses of a heifer and a goat and uh, pigeons were laid and the practice in that oral culture is to cut a contract where two people would walk between those carcasses and they would covenant, they would contract. I will bless you and keep covenant with you and I will be accursed if I fail to keep the covenant. Well, you recall that Abraham was put to sleep and God alone through the smoking pot and the flaming torch walks through the covenant alone to declare it is blood and blood only that can repair a broken covenant, but I will covenant to keep both sides, the blessing and the curse, and you can live under my smile. That's what we see here, a bond in blood sovereignly administrated. Well, how, which is question number two, how can a covenant be restored? The text points to this reality only through blood, only through blood atonement. David asked in verse three, how shall I make atonement that you bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites are right to say, you can't buy us off. There's not enough silver and gold, as Peter says, that uh, you cannot be made new and cleansed with any human action. But it takes the blood of Christ. And they asked for seven sons of Saul to be put to death. Now, likely Saul had murdered thousands. And instead of war, they're cutting a treaty here. But they say that it's going to require blood. And it, David says, how can I make atonement? That word atonement is a substitute. It's a representative 
in blood that takes the place of the injustice that's done. The word atonement means at one minute. How can we be made one again? Well, only through this bloody, gruesome, public, costly display. Does it make you think about the cross of the Lord Jesus? It was bloody, it was gruesome, it was public, and it was costly, but it was necessary to restore covenant with a holy God. Unless the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the scripture says. And note here that David does not offer Mephibosheth because of the covenant that he's made with Jonathan. To live under God's smile, God has to remedy our alienation. We're told that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God exchanged what we deserve, which is death, separation, and punishment. He put that on Jesus that we might exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. And when you live under the righteousness of God, you live under the smile of God. When you belong to him, you live under his smile. And the Bible in the New Testament describes the gospel this way. We can live under God's smile. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We can live under God's smile. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We can live under the smile of God. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, a status that we are now written into the family. We can live under the smile of God because God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son he who has the son has the life he who does not have the son does not have the life these things I write to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you live under God's smile first God's covenant and why we need it secondly covenant breaking and how it's restored Third, and lastly, well, God's covenant. How do we, as his people, build a covenant community? You'll see that is expressed or demonstrated in Rispa's example and in Abishai's example. Through Rispa, we see that we build covenant community through compassionate sacrifice. And through Abishai's example, we understand that we build covenant community through courageous sacrifice. Through compassionate and courageous sacrifice, we bring the light of God to a dark and broken place, and we build a community around that light and invite others to participate. First, Rispa's compassion. Rispa takes sackcloth, she covers her sons and these men's bodies, and the text says that it's an extended time. Who knows how long she was out in the elements. You see a mother's heart who has prayed for these children. I can't even imagine what it must have felt like when the knock came on the door and she was told that the king has need for her boys. 
I imagine like Mary, she probably followed them all the way out to the tree. And as Mary, a mother's heart, saw the hope and the light of the world nailed onto a tree, even her son turned to his friend and said, take care of my mother, but not Rispa. She's alone, and she, because of the faint light that she held onto, went and covered these bodies, declaring she believed in a resurrection. She knew those bodies belonged not to the vultures, but to God himself. You know, Christians have always, as, and Jews as well, taken care of the bodies of the dead because they have believed the body belongs to the Lord. And Christians never burned their bodies. The Christian and the Jew took care of those bodies because that body God will one day come for and our spirit will be renewed with the body. You see Rispa's compassion as she defiantly displays resurrection hope. Compassion flows from the throne of God. It brings light when we show this kind of compassionate sacrifice. Well, what about Abishai? Verse 15, it says that David, the great warrior, he's now weary. This mighty warrior who has always led from the front, can you imagine his desire to be with his men? And they recognize not only is this a danger to David, it's probably a danger to the whole group. And Abishai steps in and saves his life. And then they make an oath and a covenant. It's courageous sacrifice. They say that the lamp of Israel will not be quenched or ex extinguished. It's a reference back to 1 Samuel 3.3. You recall that when little Samuel was in Eli's house, it said that in the temple... Or excuse me, in the tabernacle, that the lamp of God had not yet been extinguished. It was speaking of the corruption of the priesthood. It was speaking of the unfaithfulness of Israel. But when it was almost dark, when it was only a flicker of light, God raised up Samuel. And Samuel anointed David. And that God's light is going to pass through this line until the light of the world is going to show forth this kind of compassionate and courageous sacrifice and win us back to God so that we can live under God's smile. They say an oath of courage. And it's instructive for us. It tells us that compassionate and, compassionate and courageous sacrifice is the pathway for showing the way to God. We're to build a community so focused on the light of the gospel, so demonstrating compassionate and courageous sacrifice that the world can find the way home because we are in covenant. We can live under God's smile. Well, what if we're like Abraham? What if we say, what if we don't know, Lord? What if we're not sure? God gave us a sign. God demonstrated his own love towards us. It's the cross in the covenant. It's Jesus being cursed, as the passage said, and hung on a tree. It's the reminder that Jesus has paid it all and that now those who trust in him live under God's smile. The cross and the empty tomb is God's sign 
of his smile on all who are his. My oldest grandchild is Lucy Claire, and she's now old enough, and she's so proud of the fact that she gets to watch movies. And uh, she always wants to tell me the movies that she watches. And she says, Grandpa, have you seen, and the latest one, she said, have you seen Encanto? And she said, which character do you like best? And I told her I hadn't seen Encanto. I had to watch it, and I didn't even know that we couldn't talk about Bruno until I watched the movie. But she asked me if I'd seen The Sound of Music. She'd just seen The Sound of Music. And I said, I have. She said, what's your favorite song? And she was surprised that I could sing Do, Re, Mi all the way through to heart. She couldn't believe it. But I said, that's not my favorite song. She said, Grandpa, what's your favorite song? My favorite song is How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria. And uh, she said, that's your favorite song? I said, that's my favorite song. She said, why is that your favorite song? So she got a little sermon. (laughs) You're going to get it now too. You recall, if you've seen the movie, that Maria is in training to become a nun. And in the a- Abbey, she's all the, uh, tr- all the lead nuns and the, governess, the, uh, the uh, Reverend Mother are frustrated and they don't know what to do with Maria. And they say she's a problem. She's always smiling. She's always singing. She seems to find something positive in everything. And they say... She's about to ruin everything for us. How do you solve this problem called Maria? Well, you know what? That's the church of Jesus Christ. You know, we've heard in our day that somehow or another, the church of Jesus Christ is the problem for all the problems that exist in the world today. Well, I'll tell you, the church is not perfect. We've done evil when we should have done good. I'm not speaking broadly about the history of the church of Jesus Christ that we've never had our faults. But I'll tell you what, the hope of the world, the lamp that has not been put out is the church of Jesus Christ. And we should live in such a way that the world says, how do you solve a problem like the church of Jesus Christ? They just take in the orphans and they make them a part of their family. How do you solve the problem of the church of Jesus Christ? Widows are cared for, the poor are thought for, How do you solve the problem called the church of Jesus Christ? People that normally would differ on superficial external issues call one another brother and sister and friend and family. How do you solve a problem like the church of Jesus Christ? It's the light of the world. It's the light that's in us. And we're called to show forth that light. Next Sunday, I will not be here. I'll be in Blue Ridge, Georgia. My youngest son, Samuel, is being baptized, and I have the privilege in the, the PCA church that they're members of there, Blairsville, to baptize little Samuel and to preach. I'll return, and then the rest of June, we're going to continue to finish out what it means to finish well at the life of David. But what do we demonstrate when we baptize our children? We demonstrate that the light is not extinguished and we're to pass that light to the next generation. We teach these children, the Father made you. Jesus loves you. The Spirit is with you. The Scriptures will guide you. And the church, we're for you. We're in your corner. We're God's family that shows forth the light. I'm so thankful 
to be a part of a church that takes serious our responsibility to show compassion and courageous sacrifice. There's so many people that I could hold up as examples. I just want to mention a few, but I will say this. Jeremiah 31 says that in the new covenant, God is going to write this law on our hearts and we're going to have a desire. It's not going to be a demand from without to serve. It's going to be desire from within. We're going to see that it's more blessed to give than receive. How does that happen? The light of Christ grows within us. Here's just a few reflections. I've seen marriages in our church where one party betrayed the other in such awful betrayal. But I've seen forgiveness, not in every situation, but where a spouse would forgive the other and that marriage has been restored. How do we forgive on a human level something as egregious as betrayal? It takes blood. But it's the blood of Christ applied to our hearts that allows us to sacrifice and forgive even a loved one that has betrayed us. I've thought of so many wives who were abandoned by their husbands. In this church, they remain faithful to their church, to their children, and the light of Christ shines brightly through them. I think of the authentic spirituality that's being shared in our elder intern program. One elder is meeting with uh, an elder intern and every week they meet and confess their sins to one another. They say that we wanna walk in the light in such a way as the darkness is not deceiving to us and to have the humility and courage to meet together and confess their sins to one another, to admit that we're the fellowship of the unworthy I think of our hand-in-hand volunteers. We have some hand-in-hand volunteers that go to people's houses when their children are sick so that the parents can come here because they want their parents to worship. Some hand-in-hand volunteers go stay overnight so that parents can get away just for a respite. What a beautiful picture of courageous and compassionate sacrifice. And then... I was at the Westminster graduation and Linda Tucheron was the commencement speaker. And Linda told her call to leave Westminster schools, which is a light in this community, and to start Heritage Academy and Jan Hitchcock and Linda bringing the light of the gospel. What compassionate courage it took to sacrifice. And it instructed me that this is what builds God's community. It's people who live under God's smile, even in the darkest of times, even in the face of our flaws and failures, even in the midst of sin and sadness. We can smile at the future. Don't you think that's a beautiful phrase? Proverbs 31 describes the Proverbs 31 woman. It says, she smiles at the future. We all can smile because we live under God's smile. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, for shining the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing the beauty of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know the light of salvation, we pray that today would be the day of salvation 
And we pray that you would continue to allow us to live under the smile of God and that we would live and build a community where we let our light shine in such a way that others see our good works and give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.